0: You are listening to CGSW on 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Today on Historical Figures, Icons, and Others, we'll be discussing the band. It's July 1968. Psychedelia had taken hold on Western popular music, largely stemming from the drug culture of the mid to late 1960s. The Beatles had embraced the style, most notably on their classic album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, over a year before. In that same vein, American guitarist Jimi Hendrix already released his two albums, Are You Experienced and *Axis: Bold as Love. Others who captured the psychedelic imagination include Cream, Jefferson Airplane, The Doors, and even The Rolling Stones for a time. This pushed music production to uncharted territory, expanding the sonic possibilities that sometimes exceeded the physical capabilities of a live rock band. However, other artists were not on board with this style. This same month, a band simply called The Band released their debut record, Music From Big Pink. Up until this point, the band was merely the backing group for Bob Dylan, comprised of Levon on drums, Rick Danko on bass guitar, Garth Hudson on organ, Richard Manuel on piano, and Robbie Robertson on guitar. Although the album took time to gain momentum among audiences, it was critically acclaimed and is considered one of the most influential albums in popular music. Eric Clapton, still with Cream at the time, was captivated by the album. The organic production and lyrical storytelling contrasted Cream's psychedelic rock, which was defined by slow, extended instrumental jams. Shortly afterwards, Clapton actually quit Cream to pursue the musical styles, reminiscent of the band. Part of what made the band successful in its early days was a perfect balance of individual talents from each member and a camaraderie that united them. The original lineup of the group drifted apart due to internal turmoil, and business disagreements relating to publishing rights and songwriting credits. I won't comment on the matter since it's a rather convoluted and even sensitive topic that has divided fans. Instead, this episode will focus on the band's music and what they produced together during their heyday. Despite the band being a mostly Canadian group, Lee Von Helm being the exception, they provided unique perspectives on the history and musical traditions of North America. This is especially prominent on their first two classic albums, often considered their most acclaimed and influential. On historical figures, icons, and others, we will dive into some of the band's best-known songs that reflected their interest in both the historic and mythical North America they created through music that also defied musical genres. Robbie Robertson was born on July 5th, 1943, in Toronto, Ontario, to a Jewish father and Mohawk mother. He recounts in his 2017 memoir, Testimony, how he and his mother visited her former home on the Six Nations Reserves near Brantford, Ontario, about four or five times a year. In her book, Music in Canada, Capturing Landscape and Diversity, Elaine Keeler quotes Nicholas Jennings, Explaining the reserve was where Robbie learned the customs of his mother's people and got his first exposure to music, a rural style, played on guitars, fiddles, and mandolins. Growing up, Robbie learned to play guitar, emulating the picking style of his uncle on the reserve. Richard Manuel was born in Stratford, Ontario on April 3, 1944. In his book Across the Great Divide, The Band in America, Barney Hoskins explains that Manuel got his start singing with the Baptist Church Choir and eventually learned piano at age eight. He discovered R&B and blues music, which would become a huge influence. Artists like Ray Charles and Bobby Blue Band helped shape his vocal style. Lee von Helm was born in Elaine, Arkansas, on March 26, 1940, to a farming family. As a youngster, he listened to various styles including bluegrass, delta blues, country, and the early sounds of rock and roll. According to the New York Times, he formed a duo with his sister Linda, playing washtub bass and performing at various clubs and county fairs. Initially picking up the guitar, he would later learn to play drums, forming his first group, the Jungle Bush Beaters, while in high school. Rick Danko was born on December 29, 1943, on a farm near Simcoe, Ontario. As a boy, he was exposed to country music, learned many stringed instruments, and claimed to have played Hank Williams songs he heard on the radio. Hoskins notes that Rick's country roots would offset and complement the bluesier style of Robbie and Richard later. Rick would switch from rhythm guitar to bass guitar when he joined Ronnie Hawkins at age 17. This would be his primary instrument throughout his career. Garth Hudson was born on August 2nd, 1937 and grew up in London, Ontario. He began studying music while still young, learning instruments including organ and accordion. He would briefly study music at the University of Western Ontario. However, he became more interested in both musical improvisation and rock and roll. These five musicians became acquainted with one another when Ronnie Hawkins recruited them for his band The Hawks, beginning in 1960. Hawkins, originally from Arkansas, came to Canada in 1961 and guided various Canadian artists rise to prominence. Keeler lists these artists which includes Bobby Curtola, John Kay, later Steppenwolf, and most importantly, the Hawks. The Hawks parted ways with Hawkins and relocated to the United States in 1966, after which Bob Dylan hired them as his backing band on his infamous electric tour. In his book Knuck Rock, A History of Canadian Popular Music, Ryan Edwardson writes their move down south was common for Canadian musicians at the time, with other artists like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young following suit, to the greater opportunities for a music career in america the hawks renamed themselves the band beginning in 1968. taking a break from touring while dylan was recovering from a motorcycle accident the band retreated to woodstock new york working on songs at a house they referred to as big pink named after its ugly pink exterior the album music from big pink defied boundaries defining musical geography genres and even historic eras. The musical styles that influenced each member produces a versatile, yet cohesive sound inspired by genres including country, blues, R&B, and even classical music. This fusion is especially prominent on tracks like Chest Fever. Garth Hudson shines as he opens a song with a grandiose organ solo which Hoskins describes as reminiscent of Bach's cotton fugue in D minor, with a song changing into a guitar-driven rockier sound. No more, Hoskins' credits the beautiful surrounding Woodstock landscape as being part of the inspiration for one of the other tracks, In a Station, boasting Richard Manuel's soulful vocal style, and what Hoskins describes as pining, pedal-steel guitar, and plinky Toy Town keyboards. The station, your Richard's vocals would be prominent elsewhere on the album, such as Lonesome Susie, and I shall be released. Richard also takes the lead on the opening track, Tears of Rage. In his critically acclaimed book, Mystery Train, Images of America in Rock and Roll Music, Grail Marcus describes the song as changing the 4th of July into an image of betrayal and of loneliness. It is a slow track, featuring what Hoskins describes as anguish Guitar by Robbie, Ominous Drums by Levon, Funeral Organ by Garth, and heartbreaking vocals by Richard. Of course, the centerpiece of Big Pink is this song. The Wait, Levon Helm's shining moment as a vocalist on the album, starts off with an acoustic guitar riff and shifting into a laid-back groove, highlighting Levon's tasteful drumming and Garth's piano work. And who can forget that chorus? Perhaps part of the reason for its popularity is the ambiguous nature of the lyrics, taking place in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. The narrator recounts their encounters with interesting characters, including Luke, young Anna Lee, and Crazy Chester. Hoskins describes the song as Robbie penning a laid-back country gospel parable about the impossibility of sainthood, the story of a poor schmuck who does a friend a favor that only leads to people asking further favors. According to the Encyclopedia of Great Popular Song Recordings by Steve Sullivan, the names Nazareth and Luke seem to bring religious overtones to the song. The entry points to Time Magazine, which suggests that it recounts an encounter between an Old Testament character and a rock musician, pointing to characters like Luke waiting on Judgment Day. Initially, the wait was a modest seller as a single, but began to be recognized when artists like the Staple Singers and Aretha Franklin recorded their own versions. Even The Temptations and Supremes teamed up to cover the song. John Schneider, in his book Whispering Pines, points to its inclusion in the 1969 film Easy Rider as when it achieved its iconic status. From the perspective of Edwardson, the band in their debut album was a breath of fresh air from the youth quake he described. The band combined American history, mythology, and geography with a down-to-earth feel rooted in traditions from long ago. And for the band, music from Big Pink was only the beginning. Schneider argues that the portrait of America is even more prominent on the band's 1969 sophomore album, also called The Band. Edwardson describes the album as a carefully constructed piece of American anti-modernism, seeped in the past but resonating within the present, playing upon deeply seated sentiments of patriotism and identity. Like on their debut album, the band defies musical and geographical boundaries. The opening track, "Across the Great Divide," immediately sets the tone for the band's fascination with America. Marcus describes it as a metaphor for where two sides of the nation separate and where the sides also meet. In his words, that first song and those that follow are meant to cross the great divide, between men and women, between the past and present, between the country and city, between north and south, between the band and their new audience. Another track, Rag Mama Rag, is another classic song from the band. Rick Danko plays fiddle, Levon Helm strums away on a mandolin, and Garth Hudson plays what Hoskins describes as a ragtime kind of piano. While the instrumentation seems like just yet another example of the band embracing American musical elements, Robbie Robertson offered a more nuanced view in 1971. According to Schneider, he stated that songs like Rag Mama Rag utilizes instruments like tuba that reflect a type of traditional Canadian genre, we ultimately believed that canada and the united states were two different countries that also shared the exact same styles like blues to what he describes as cowboy music in other words robbie's view on canadian music is well there is no such thing as canadian music he encompasses the various styles as a north american style Levon remember taking Robbie down to the library to read up on American history, resulting in the vivid storytelling on the song The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Taking place in the American South during and after the Civil War, Edwardson describes a song as about an individual named Virgil Kane, who recounts his life of chopping wood, tilling the soil in Tennessee, his excitement at an appearance by Robert E. Lee, the loss of his brother in the war, and the ruthless destruction caused by the Union Yankee army under General George Stoneman. In his book, Right to the Juke Joint, A Personal History of American Music, Patrick B. Mullen argues that despite being written by a Canadian, the song retains a historic and emotional authenticity, thanks to Lee Arkansas heritage. As you can probably imagine, the song has been rather controversial over the years, with some believing it to be an endorsement of the Confederacy. Rolling Stone wrote an article about country singer Early James' decision to modify the lyrics when performing his own cover of the song for Marcus King's Last Waltz Tribute show. This was also the same year of the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, also when certain historical monuments were being removed. Conversely, Jack Hamilton, writing in Slate magazine, stated that there is no direct endorsement of the Confederacy, Rather, he believes the song laments the devastation of war from the losing side. He believes the anti-war nature of the song is what resonated with listeners in 1969 at the height of the devastating Vietnam War. In their book The Long Reconstruction, The Post-Civil War South in History, Film and Memory, Frank J. Weta and Martin A. Navalny quote Robbie's inspiration for the song. Robbie explained that he wrote the song after visiting the American South for the first time, when he heard the common expression, don't worry, the South's gonna rise again. After hearing this, he realized that there's pain here. There's a sadness here. In Americana land, it's a kind of a beautiful sadness. Rolling Stone also notes how Robbie has distanced himself from the Confederate imagery of the song, stating that, I was trying to write a song that I thought Levon could sing better than anybody in the world. That's all it was. That's what it meant to me. Despite the controversy, the song is nevertheless considered one of the band's best songs. Another classic on the album is Up On Cripple Creek. Yvonne Helm sings about a man visiting a woman friend of his in Lake Charles, Louisiana. In his book The Band, Pioneers of Americana Music, Craig Harris explains the song is likely a reference to the traditional song, Cripple Creek, covered by fellow Canadian singer Buffy St. Marie. Garth Hudson plays clavinet with a wah-wah pedal, described by Harris as replicating a bow harp sound. The clavinet would become popular within 70s funk music remember Stevie Wonder's classic superstition? Robbie explained, We're not dealing with people at the top of the ladder. We're saying, what about that house out there in the middle of that field? What does this guy think? With that one light on upstairs, and that truck parked out there. That's who I'm curious about. What is going on in there? Born in the fields to the when the wind blows across the water The album's final track, King Harvest, has surely come, according to Harris, tells a story of a sharecropping farmer who has hit hard times because no rain has fallen, his barn burned down, and his horse Jethro apparently went mad. He is recruited by a union organizer, which brings him hope for a bright future. According to Harris, it is possible the song refers to the trade union Unity League, which organized sharecroppers from 1928 to 1935 in the American South. Marcus, on the other hand, states the man could very well be what he calls Virgil Kane's grandson, or our contemporary. Robbie described the song as being just a character study in a time period. At the beginning, when unions came in, they were a saving grace, a way of fighting the big money people. Robbie ends the song with a trademark guitar solo, closing off the song, and closing off the album. Like their debut, the album, The Band, received highly favorable reviews from critics, with some even calling it better than the band's debut effort. In fact, writing for The Village Voice in 1969, fame music reviewer Robert Crisco even called the album better than The Beatles' Abbey Road, the latter being released four days later. While the band's first two albums are usually considered their best, they did produce some classic songs into the 1970s. The 1970 album Stage Fright, their third album, sold well and was well-received, though critics had some reservations. The American mysticism present on the first two albums is noticeably toned down, resulting in a more fragmented album that Schneider describes as being fixed in the present tense. Robbie reflects in his memoir how the album was produced during a time when drugs were starting to take hold on some members of the band, resulting in what Marcus believes to be more personal lyrics. The hit song Shape I'm In seems to reflect what Robbie sees as the self-destruction he saw within the band. Their 1971 album Cahoots, though not a major success, still produced some classic songs like Life is a Carnival, and a cover of the Bob Dylan tune, When I Paint My Masterpiece. masterpiece. In his article, Across the Great Divide, Imitation and Inflection in Canadian Rock Music, Barry K. Grant believes that by the time they released their 1973 album, Moondog Mantine, the band was trying to shed its American image that defined them on their early albums. With all that said, the band did release the successful live album, Rock of Ages, in 1972, and collaborated with Bob Dylan once again with the 1974 album, Planet Waves. Recordings from the band, with and without Bob Dylan, from the Big Pink era, was released as the album, the Basement Tapes, widely considered a classic album for both the band and Dylan. The 1975 album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, can be seen as a return to form for the group, and has many shining moments on it. Acadian Driftwood, gypsy tailwind, they call my home, the Acadian Driftwood was the first song Robbie wrote with a Canadian theme, He was inspired to write the song after viewing a documentary in Montreal entitled L'Acadie, L'Acadie. Just like the night they drove old Dixie down, Acadian Driftwood recounts a historical event. In this case, the expulsion of the Acadians, who were French settlers in eastern Canada, from the Maritimes in the mid-18th century. Many of these homeless Acadians ended up in Louisiana, helping shape the state's culture. Hoskins explains that the song was inspired by the Longfellow epic Evangeline, which mentioned the driftwood from the wrecked ships in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence. Admittedly, the song does take some artistic liberties, according to Peter Viney. For example, although the real-life deportation took place between 1755 to 1763, according to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the song presents them occurring after the British victory in the Plains of Abraham in 1759. In addition, the war was overline is incorrect because the Seven Years War did not commence until 1756, after the deportations began. However, this by no means discredits the beauty of the song and its poignant reflection of a dark time in Canadian history. Robbie recounts in his memoir how he worked to retain authenticity in the music, He maintained that using a French accordion and fiddle would bring the sound of what he describes as Acadian-Canadian-Cajun gumbo. By 1977, Robbie had grown weary of touring, so he pitched the idea of a last performance that would be filmed under the direction of Martin Scorsese. The band gave their last concert on Thanksgiving Day at Winterland in San Francisco, which would be known as The Last Waltz. Not only were all the audience members served turkey dinners, but they would bear witness to one of the greatest concert films of all time. The concert brought fresh renditions of some of the songs I mentioned, including The Wait, which features the Staple Singers, and if you remember I mentioned they covered their song, and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down featured one of Von Helm's most passionate vocal performances, backed by a full horn section. The concert also had an all-star lineup, featuring fellow Canadians Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. Other guests included Ronnie Hawkins, Bob Dylan, Muddy Waters, Eric Clapton, among others. The last song the classic lineup performed together was their version of Don't Do It, bringing a close to their touring days. After the band released Islands in 1977, the original lineup of the group essentially drifted apart. They would reunite, although without Robbie. Sadly, Richard Manuel, after struggling with substance abuse, would take his own life while touring with the band on March 4, 1986. He was only 42. Rick Danko, aside from the band reunions, collaborated with prolific artists. Hoskins lists Eric Anderson as among these names. According to the New York Times, Danko also recorded a series of solo albums and continued performing, touring to promote his new solo album in the days leading up to his death. He was in poor health for much of his later years, eventually passing away on December 10th, 1999. Leave Helm released a few solo albums and would also branch out into film acting, The New York Times, reflecting on his life in 2012, listed his roles in films like Coal Miner's Daughter, The Right Stuff, and the made-for-TV movie The Dollmaker. He also played with the band The Midnight Ramble, their shows beginning at his own barn in Woodstock, and eventually branching out into a touring group. He recorded an album with Mavis Staples in 2011, shortly before he passed away. The album would be released in 2022. He too would suffer from poor health, succumbing to complications from throat cancer on April 19th, 2012. Garth Hudson has been an in-demand session musician over the years. He still makes the occasional public appearance, including a mini-documentary by Rolling Stone, where he revisited The Big Pink House in Woodstock, where the magic started all those years ago. Robbie Robertson perhaps had the most success following the band's demise. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, he composed the music and starred in *Carney*. He continued to collaborate with Martin Scorsese, producing music for films like Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, and The Color of Money. Robbie would explore his aboriginal roots with the 1994 album Music for the Native Americans. With his 80th birthday this month, Robbie Robertson has established himself as one of the great Canadian songwriters. The band in the 1960s and 1970s played a vital part in a quiet but essential revolution in popular music. The music that was captured on their first two albums can only be described as lightning in a bottle. Music from Big Pink reflected and even catalyzed the change in popular music. It was rooted in a desire to return to musical traditions, to return to the basics of rock music, to return to an era before many listeners' time. Despite most of the members being Canadian, or maybe even because of it, their view on the United States was fresh. The lyrics, especially on their second album, brought a mythical edge to the nation's history that proved refreshing, even nostalgic, for American listeners. Despite their fascination with America, they also looked to Canada for musical inspiration, especially on tracks like Acadian Driftwood. Robbie Robertson and Garth Hudson continue to carry the legacy of the band today. Levon Helm, Richard Manuel, and Rick Danko are sadly no longer with us, but their legacies live on through their music, and the musicians they inspired then, and now. Thank you for listening to Historical Figures, Icons, and Others. Stay tuned for future episodes.